Father, we are astounded by your love and your mercy, by your caring, by your compassion, the many, many things that, Lord, tie us to you. And yet sometimes, Lord, we, we drift away. Sometimes we pull away. Father, you never leave. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice that he made so that we might live. Lord, continue in our hearts as we look into your word for a few moments. May the songs that we've sung and the words that we hear move only towards one thing, to give you glory and honor, to strengthen us to live lives that are worthy of your calling. And we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So if, if you hadn't noticed, uh, last Friday afternoon, my uh, bride had a big old board fall on her foot. She's got a little, one of those little air casts there that she has on now. I was making a coin holder for my youngest daughter, Melinda, who's going to be promoted to uh, a master sergeant in the Air Force next month. And so Barbara was cleaning the shop. You see, we have this little deal. The deal is this. I, if I make things for her and for others, then she, she'll clean up the mess behind me because I tend to not do that very well. Uh, so I called the... Uh, uh, urgent care to see if they did x-rays because it was immediately painful. It was immediately swollen. It was uh, immediate uh, need that she had. It was it was debilitating. And so uh, we went to urgent care. We got her an air boot and uh, we got her some meds, especially for that first day. Lots of uh, lots of pain, actual some screams. You ever go to the emergency room or urgent care and you hear yeah, there's reasons for that. Uh, there was a baby next to us, a little child. He did not want to get a shot. Uh, he had nothing to say in the matter, but uh, he had he had a lot of volume to say nothing. It was uh, it was an unpleasant task for her, uh, to say the least. But as as I was reflecting on her injury uh, on Saturday morning, I realized, you know what? A lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about in the message today. Uh, are actually applicable to what happened to her. The force of my message this morning is largely going to be on living peaceably with one another and how that how that happens through this text. And a part of that is what we heard about how we deal with with enemies. But Barbara's injury, it was it was sudden. It was unexpected. And at least temporally, it was it was disabling. And if, if not treated properly, it could have uh, chronic effects, pain, and and uh, it could become a debilitating injury over time. And you know what? I, I realized often that's how conflict happens, right? It's without notice. You're just going along. Everything is well. And suddenly... You you notice this incredible pain in your soul, and it is uh, potentially and at some moments practic uh, practically incapacitating. Uh, 
And we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to deal with it. You know, one of our society's greatest challenges involves our public schools and what is taught there. Or more specifically, to my point, what is not taught there. Do you know in the, the beginning, in about 1629, we had the first public schools open up, and that was in uh, Massachusetts, uh, near the Boston area. And the reason they opened up was one primary reason. Anybody know what that was? To learn how to read the Bible. Public schools in this country began with this understanding that we need to teach people to read the Bible so that they can read it for themselves. But they also had other things that they taught. Of course, they taught, you know, the uh, reading, writing, arithmetic type of a thing. But there was more than that, right? They taught more than that. And the weight of the Judeo-Christian heritage made them teach things like, huh, what it meant to be a good husband, what it meant to be a good wife, what it meant to be a good child. Not only that, they taught how to resolve conflict in the family, in the church, and in the community. They taught those things. You know, when I learned the alphabet, A was for apple, B was for ball. But the first public schools, A was for Adam's sin. And B was this little thing. Thy life to mend this book attend. And it was sitting, this little phrase, next to the Holy Bible. And people learn how to solve conflict in the family, the church, and community because biblical rules were normative. Now, while modern man says, well, that's gone and good riddance to it. We didn't like it, didn't want it in the first place. That's what they say. The fact is, is that when we have sudden, painful and debilitating conflict, the only true resource that we have to fall on, by and large, is our family of origin and how they handled conflict. Now, for some of us, that's okay. Some of you were blessed in that regard. For other of us, like me, it's not okay. Right. Because you learn how to settle conflict in ways that just were not good. You, you learn how to settle them by being very loud or very silent or very distant or in your face, very close. You must win. You must lose. Sometimes settling conflict. Was done with violence. Other times it was done at the bottom of a glass. Most of us, truthfully speaking, don't have the best modeling in the world when it comes to settling conflict. Barbara went to a doctor to treat her injury and to give her foot the best chance for healing and recovery uh, that she could have so that it wouldn't become chronic. But where do we go? Where do we go? When we end up with a conflict that truly takes our sleep away, where do we go? What do we do? Or to the point of this passage, what does genuine love look like in a conflict situation? Before we even get to the passage, I want to uh, just kind of fill in a few things for you about 
about conflict so that we're, 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 we're on the same page. And I want to define conflict as simply as I can. And you already know this whether you knew you knew it or not. But as simply as I can, conflict is two people or two groups trying to occupy the same space at the same time. Now, we know that. That's matter, right? I mean, that's why when we get to the highway, we look left and we look right, right? Because we know that our car and their car can't occupy occupy the same uh, space in the same time in the same way. They may occupy it together for a moment, but it wouldn't be in the same way, that's for sure. The space for conflict, it could be literal. I mean, it could be two children or maybe you don't want to call them children, but uh, uh, two young uh, people, even whatever. Uh, and, and they want separate bedrooms, but mommy and daddy want an office. And so there's conflict. It, it, and it could be uh, it could be the car and the use of the car. It could be office space. It could be program space. It could be the number of songs that are sang, sung and on and on. It could be any kind of thing where that happens. Second, this is uh, uh, close to the first, uh, of course. All of these things kind of overlap and blend together. But when two, or pe- uh, two people or two groups actually have one of their concerns, one of their issues, one of their goals frustrated. So if you're frustrating my goal, that will produce conflict. If I'm frustrating your goal, that will produce conflict. I want to spend money on this. George doesn't. He wants to spend money on that. But Gary doesn't want to spend money at all. We've only got this X amount of money. You know? Finally, and most critically, conflict is a contest of opposing forces, i.e. a battle of the wills. And this is where it gets most most damaging. And this is where two people or two groups, they say, this is not only the way it should be, this is the way that it will be. And once somebody plants their flag like that, you might as well say, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee. Because all meaningful discussion is, has ceased. It's done. It's over. Go have a barbecue. Go watch a football game. You're not going to communicate on anything else. And that's, you know what? Don't look, I know we've, we've all got internet in here and we're all going to look. I want you to look this up afterwards. Don't look it up now. But I want you to look it up because you're not going to believe that the story is true. In 1987, on the Black Sea, there were two Soviet ships. One was a, a, a passenger ship that had over 1,200 souls on board. The other was a freighter that had this, you know, load of oats on it. And for 45 minutes, they knew that they were on a collision course. They even talked to each other. But neither captain gave way. And as a result, there were 600 dead. They just, I'm more important than you are. You do what I say. You know, there is no place for elitism or superiority in the Christian life at all. And it leads nowhere good. It takes you nowhere that you you want to be. I mean, this will peace can happen even internally. Romans 7 is an example of that 
where our faith informs us about certain things. Our faith. Did you know your faith informs you as to where you should go? Your faith informs you as to what you should do. And get this, your faith actually inform you, informs you as to who you should hang out with. Yeah? Sometimes I don't like that. Sometimes I want to go where I want to go. I want to do what I want to do. And I want to hang out with who I want to hang out with. And thus, we have internal conflict. You know, many years ago, some of you will relate to this. Some of you won't relate to this at all. That's... Uh, you know, but many years ago, there's a comedian. His name was Flip Wilson. And he played a character called Geraldine. And when he'd do something stupid, he'd say, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. But I tell you what, when we get off track, when we're off track, we don't need no devil to make any. We do a fine enough job on our own. Our desires and our ethics don't always disagree and when we choose our desires over biblical imperatives, it always invariably leads to pain and suffering. I mean, you know, when that will conflict is interpersonal, it can be devastated. When it's in the church, it can be devastating because the only solution at that point is win and lose. And most people think they're winners. And so consequently, it is a mess. Do you know that 3,700 churches close every year on average? And most, I won't say most, most of them actually just die out. But many of them, they go out because they can't sort out their conflicts. Where do we go again? Where do we turn as believers? Let's let's look at Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick up right where Pavan left off. But I'm going to go look back at verse nine, Romans 12. Uh, I'm going to look back at verse nine again for a, a few moments, because that is the controlling verse of the entire section. What you find is, is that this section is bracketed between verse 9 and verse 21. It even uses a very similar and some of the same language to let, you know, Paul is letting you know, I'm starting with something about genuine love and now, and now I'm ending it here. If you look in your Bible, you'll find different headings. The ESV heading is Marks of the True Christian, the New American Standard uh, says righteousness in relation to society. The NIV simply says love. Now, I particularly like what one of the greatest New Testament scholars of the last century, F.F. F. Bruce, wrote by entitling the text at verse 9, the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And both grammatically and textually, the verses that we read are actually an exposition on what genuine love as it abhors evil and clings to good looks like. You know, we, we talk about those terms in uh, so many abstract ways that we don't really understand. So Paul is saying, you know, you want to know what this looks like? Here it is. And so he draws, he begins that in verse 9. And he ends in verse 21 when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So he's explaining to us the means of 
withstanding and overcoming evil through genuine love. And, and these, these verses de- demonstrate precisely what it looks like. Verse 9 spells it out. It talks about love's quality. What is the quality of love? It is sincere. It is genuine. We see love's morality. It is an active morality. It does not stand by. It is a, a, a moving morality. It's a morality that causes you to action. And that action is in opposition to evil. Verse 21 reveals that it's not just an emotion. We oftentimes we've gotten this notion of love, biblical love, all tied up with how we feel about something. And yes, feelings are a part, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about genuine love that actively overcomes evil. There's a couple of things I want to reiterate that Pavan mentioned last week uh, about the word uh, sincere or, or genuine. It depends on the it depends on the text that you're using, right? So the word that is there means without hypocrisy, and so hypocrisy did not mean then what it means today. If we were using the Greek language as it was intended then and not today, I could say with great confidence that my favorite actor is Benedict. Cumberbatch. <laughs> My, did I say actor? I blew it. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Actually, it means the same thing. Hypocrite means actor. My favorite hypocrites are Dwayne Johnson and Chris Hemsley, Anne Hathaway, Jodie Foster, if you remember her, and Sandra Bullock. I mean, those are, those are my favorite hypocrites. And... Because in that time, hypocrite meant actor. And it's over time that it's come to mean something else. It meant one thing, actor on the stage. And oh, by the way, an actor is what? An actor is someone who has the ability to feign emotions that they don't have. To feign a context that they don't live in. And never have. In other words, they're able to create a, a, I'll call it a, I'll call it a fantasy, but it's really a lie that we both agree on is okay. And the better you are at doing that, the more money you get. How, is that an amazing thing? The better liar you are, the more you get paid. And the word then moved from the stage out into real life where now it's come to mean hypocrite has come to mean you're insincere. You don't believe what you are saying. It's an act. Let's look at the uh, the verses from 14 on to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay 
says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So verse 14 tells us to bless those who persecute us. This is as stunning as the words of Christ when he said it in the Sermon on the, on the Mount. More than not harming, more than not speaking ill of, we are in fact to, to bless them. While Barbara and I served in the, in the Middle East for a number of years, you didn't see this very often, but you did see it. It was something that was still done during a, 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 formal, a formal greeting. But uh, someone that you were meeting formally, they might, they might put their hand to their heart and then their lips and then their head like this. And what that meant was, I love you. My lips speak well of you and I, I think well of you. You know, uh, it's pretty much going out of style now. In fact, it can mean the complete opposite of what its intent is. Somebody might go, you know, that doesn't mean the same thing, right? But it, it's, the point is, is that's how we're to react to all people. We are to love all people. Why? Because Christ loved them. Are you? Yes, we are. We have to go beyond our own selves and get to the place where if Christ loves them, we must love them as well. Not only that, we have to think well of them in the sense, uh, I mean, in, in, the, in a couple of senses I'll, I'll mention here in just a second. But we love people because they're made in the image of God, because Christ died for them. And to bless them, how do you bless how do you bless an enemy or how would you bless someone who wasn't even a believer? How would you even do that? Blessing our enemies does not mean that we are to ask God for them to prosper. That is not what it means. Certainly not here, except in one way, through salvation. We are to ask that God would bring them to salvation because in all sincerity, loving a person, depending on who that person is and what that person has done, could very well mean prison for them. And that's the most loving thing that you can do. Genuine love is not some emotional stance. It's doing that which is best for the other person. In verse 15, we're told to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I mean, why wouldn't why wouldn't we rejoice? Actually, there are lots of reasons. Some of them are reasonable. They really are some reasonable uh, things and some not not so much. I mean, the things that come immediately to our minds is that, you know, we're so so self-centered that we can't see uh, what's going on in the lives of another person. We're, we're deaf to their emotions and their feelings. Or it might be plain old arrogance, uh, you know, to, to laugh with someone about what they're laughing about or rejoicing about or crying about or whatever it might be means that you are impacted in the same way that they're impacted. Well, some people are just above all that. They just, uh, that's not, not for them. Sometimes we don't even know why 
You know, our first reaction is, you know, to weep or to rejoice, but then we don't. We either sit there in paralysis or we reflect on it until it results in paralysis so we don't do anything. There are other things, too, that are worse. Resentment, envy. You know, we don't want to give joy or to be joyful for somebody who took the position that we were up for with them. We don't, we don't want to do that. We don't want to celebrate that with, with them. And yet the Apostle Paul says, do it. Or another reason is we could be depressed. Our, our emotions are, are, are numbed. You know, as believers, we are faced with a mixture of experiences. Some of them are incredibly powerful and some of them are incredibly difficult. And as long as there's time to absorb each one as it comes along, that's fine. But sometimes they just come right after the other, one right after the other. You get hit this way and you get hit that way. And then you become overwhelmed. And in that sense, it's difficult to be able to authentically rejoice or weep because you become one of the weeping ones or whatever. It's, it's something that is challenging. One of the most challenging things, and, and at the end I hope to give you a way to do this. If you've ever struggled with this, I, I, I hope to give you a small pathway to that. But one of the most challenging things of being an on-call chaplain for the weekends, the on-call chaplain at a level one trauma center, is you have no idea what's going to come through the door. You really don't. You don't know if it's going to be somebody who needs a simple surgery. You don't know if it's somebody who's been stabbed. You don't know if it's somebody who's been shot. You don't know if somebody has been in a car accident. You don't have any idea. But one of the things that would always strike me the most is when I was on the pediatric ward or the neonatal unit, and I would literally have to go from one room where the parents are celebrating the birth of their, their child and then go to the next room within a span of minutes, not a lot of minutes, where the parents are mourning the loss of their child. How do you celebrate and then you weep? How do you go from working with someone for six months and they're, and they're going home? You know, they're leaving the hospital. Finally, they're, they're free and they get to, to get, go home and be with their family and then Someone who you've worked with for six months leaving the hospital, but they're going to be buried. How do you how do you how do you do that? I'll, I'll tell you, by God's grace, with whatever you're faced with in this regard, by God's grace. The key is simple. The Lord tells us over and over and over again to put it in popular, common vernacular. It's not about you. If you make the other person the object of your ministry, the, the direction that your ministry, that the Lord has given to you to flow, and you focus on them and not yourself, guess what? You can do it. And it's not even a matter of can do it. If you're focusing on them, you simply will do it. You'll be able to rejoice. You'll be able to... We've, don't you love the old rhyme, a sorrow shared is but half the trouble? 
A joy shared is a joy made double. It's a wonderful thing and true. So in verse 16, we are told to to live in harmony, uh, not to be proud and to associate with the lowly. I really love and enjoy those statements. And while I am not a a Greek scholar, I, I do believe that at discrete points, this is true in medicine too, uh, at discrete points, you can know as much or more than anybody else. It's possible, right? Okay, so having said that, live in harmony is translated in the ESV, the RSV, the NIV, probably every version that you have out there, except for perhaps one. And uh, And I happen to believe that the King James is... Uh, more accurate in this case it, because living in harmony doesn't capture the nuances of actually what's being said here. The text does not say, by the way, live in harmony. That's what we translate it as. But the text actually means be of the same mind towards one another. Now, that should strike you immediately. You should, uh, 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 having read the, the Bible, if that's a part of your Tradition and the things that you do, then guess what? Philippians 2 should pop immediately to your mind because that is almost a quote. And, and you have Paul saying the same thing. Be of the same mind. Not simply the live in harmony, i.e. The, the absence of conflict and perhaps even the presence of some positive feelings. No, being of the same mind has this notion that drives you to do what you can in the in advance for the interest of others. It goes towards humility. It goes towards consideration and respect. As I mentioned before, a Christian who is an elitist is not living the life of the believer. There's another little word here that has some information that I appreciate as well. And it's that word, if you're in the King James, it says condescend. In the uh, English Standard Version, it says associate, where it says, you know, who you uh, associate with, what you're so, uh, to associate with. Condescend, at once upon a time, was a beautiful word. Uh, it's not anymore, right? Now it means paternalistic, superiority. It's just this nasty word. Who would ever want to say, ooh, he's condescending? That would be, that would be an awful thing to say about somebody. But when that was translated, right, it was. It didn't mean that at all. What it meant was that a person who had the ability to leave behind their station in order to work with with anybody. It, it had a really beautiful meaning, which it no longer carries, and that's why they've changed it to associate uh, now. But this notion was that regardless of where you are where you came from, what your bank account reads, what your genealogy reads, what your education might be. You're just one. Uh, you're just another person. You're just another person there. And in the Greek, it has an altogether more interesting meaning than either one of those two. It is a cool word that means to be carried away. You know, we might we might say uh, some, somebody got carried away with their uh, their video games or somebody got carried away with their sports or somebody got carried away with 
money. It could be, but this notion of being of being carried away. And while believers should absolutely uh, be at ease with all of God's people in whatever station they are, it misses the point. The point is not who you're supposed to hang out with. The scripture is not telling us go and hang out with lowly people. I don't know what a lowly people is. Do you? I'm not going to go hang out and say, oh, I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do. I'm hanging out with the lowly folks. <laughs> no, people's not there. The word people, person, anything is not there. Let me tell you what this actually means as far as I can tell and as far as I'm concerned. It means to be carried away with humble tasks. It means change the diaper, do the dishes, sweep the floor, move the chairs, shovel the snow, or in our case, the pollen. It means that you are not to behave Based on your station, but based upon the needs, the felt needs, the other needs that are out there. That's what it means. It means carried away with doing things. We see this in Mark 10. Jesus himself said it when he said, whosoever would be great among you must be a servant. He's not playing with words. He's talking about who's doing the laundry. He's talking about chores. He's talking about doing things. He's talking about taking out the trash. Somebody here takes out the trash to the street. And somebody here wheels it back. Somebody here sets up the tables. Talking about things like that. As we move on to verse 18, uh, I love the practicality of God because it immediately acknowledges that some people may not now nor ever will get along with you. And there's even a double caveat here, right here. Paul does this. He says, first, if possible, if possible. And second, so far as it depends on you, that's striking, right? Because Paul does not press the Roman believers into some unrealistic ideal, nor does he expect them to compromise their faith. He's real. I tell you, many Christians, they overburden their hearts by thinking, if only I loved them more, if only I behaved in a different way, if only I could find the words, the right words to say, if only I, if only I, if only I could change this about myself, if only I, if only I, and guess what? If only I did that, they would love or like even or perhaps more than that, they would accept me. The cold, hard truth is that's not true. Not true. You need to be who you are. You need to be who God created you to be and not go around changing yourself so that somebody else might not like you because the person who doesn't like you likely won't like you anyway. We need to be open with one another and in submission to God. And it's at this point that Forgiveness really becomes hard. C.S. Lewis made a remarkable statement. He said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely ideal until they have something to forgive. <laughs> okay, as we wrap up here, the, the passage this is not complete without some mention 
of the, the heaping of uh, coals of, of fire upon one's head. This actually comes from Proverbs chapter 25, uh, verses 21-22, if you want to look it up. And as such, the, where it's located is, is uh, just as important as, as what it says. So the time frame that it gives us, the time of the Proverbs, we also know in the same time frame the Egyptians, when they would repent publicly, that's what they would do. They would have a pan of burning coals on their head and they would walk through the people. It was a public thing and that's how they demonstrated to the community that they had repented from whatever it was that they had done wrong. And so I think that's the best way uh, the, that's the best way to take this. I know some people now listen now there may be a practical value to this, but it's certainly not the intent because the the the, the notion that this is heaping guilt on their head is not good. And I'll tell you why it's not good. It is not your job. It is not our job to put guilt on anybody. You know what? If you want guilt to be put on somebody, you need you need to talk to the Holy Spirit about that. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who puts guilt in its proper place, in its proper role. This is about and 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 yes, it may be guilt that has led to repentance, but what we're looking for, I don't know. But what we're looking for, I think, in this picture is that by doing these things, these uh, good instead of evil, what happens is that leads the person to repentance. Leave God deal with all the reasons uh, for that. And so we want the Holy Spirit to do his work. So last Friday afternoon Barb's foot really got hurt you ever you be you know you're next to somebody and you can't do anything all you can do is be witness of their pain wow that that's it really hurts uh but because the appropriate actions were taken she's not using crutches today she did yesterday she's walking around on her boot and she's healing nicely some of you have been really hurt really hurt. I get it. I know. The text gives us answers to what genuine love in conflict looks like. Trust God in our hearts. Be patient in our troubles. Be inclined to bless. And our actions never repay evil with evil. It goes nowhere. At all. So first, leave room for God to take care of the situation. Too often we, we leap to judgment, but we're to trust God. Second, actively do good. Give thought in the sight of all to do good. We live in a culture of broken relationships and institutions and communities Mainly because we no longer know what it means to live by the power of the Spirit and under the guidance of His Word. We spend our time coming from ourselves. You know, when uh, one person wrote when he was struggling with conflict, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. 
but to live below with the saints we know. Now, that's a different story. (laughs) While one may suffer physical injury that cripples one for life, it's true. In the spiritual world, our wounds never need be lifelong because Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross for our behalf so that if we believe in him, we can have not only eternal life, yes, and not only life, yes, but life abundant. Father, we are deeply grateful for your mercies to us. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your compassion. Lord, as we, as we look at the different conflicts that might be in our life, as we look at the need for forgiveness, as we look at our enemies who we cannot love into the kingdom, we, we pray that you would allow us to do what Paul asked us to do, and that's everything in our power. And once we do that, Lord, let us be clear before you. We thank you. We praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen.